folks, and welcome back to Marrakesh Issues, Episode 3. Well, okay, you're not coming back to Issue 3, it's just getting started, but uh, welcome back to the show in general. I gotta say, I'm pretty, I don't know, I'm feeling pretty slow this past week. Um, it could be the holiday weekend threw things off a bit. It could be that, yeah, I'm still getting over that migraine that I talked about on the last episode. It could be that Mercury just went back into retrograde. It could be that I haven't been sleeping much since we got some new upstairs neighbors, which includes three younger kids who at 8 a.m. sharp start jumping on their bed and running corner to corner of their apartment every fucking day at 8 a.m. Could be any of those things. So I'll warn you right now, I've been feeling a little tense, you know? But with that in mind, here's what's on the docket for this week's episode. We've got a bunch of good comics to cover. Very good stuff came out recently. Um, then we're going to talk about the Portland Indie Comic Cons, sorry, Portland Indie Con, their first year. Um, also got a recent experience slash example of what not to say to your friendly local comic shop worker. And then we'll wrap things up with a couple listener questions. So yeah, let's, uh, let's jump in. First up, comics. Comics, comics. Lots of great stuff came out this past week, and I am definitely not going to have time to talk about all of it, but... I do want to give some shout-outs to some of my favorites. Crowded Issue 7 came out last week. That's written by Portlander Chris Sabella, and the issue starts off the series' second story arc. So you should be able to also find the first trade paperback that collects the first six issues of that story. I love this book. I love how the series mixes action with a very dark sense of humor, and... I think anyone, millennials especially, but anyone who's familiar with services like Kickstarter, Uber, WAG, um, what's the Grubhub, stuff like that, like, if you're familiar with those types of apps and gig economy, you're definitely going to enjoy this book, especially if you also love things like assassination. I don't want to give too much away. There's some assassination stuff going on. There's some great fashion that goes on too. Oh my God. Um, but definitely Crowded Issue 7, new arc. And if you're not caught up, you should be able to find that first volume in your local comic shop. Also this past week, the new Lois Lane series written by Greg Rucka kicked off. Um, but I'm going to wait to talk about that one on a later episode since I'll be seeing him at a signing in a couple weeks. Uh, it's an interesting first issue, and I definitely had, uh, I don't know, I had some good chuckles in it and uh, enjoyed my reading experience. So, but in the meantime, go grab an issue, check it out, let me know if, uh, if you like it. Um, what else? Oh, uh, so you'll probably recall that in the last episode, I was pretty stoked about the new Silver Surfer comic. And I asked y'all for some recommendations on your favorite Silver Surfer books. Definitely got some good replies, um, but the one people mentioned most was Silver Surfer Parable, which, 
just so happened to get a 30th anniversary hardcover edition released just last week. What immaculate timing that is. Parable was written by Stan Lee with pencils by Mobius, yes, the Mobius, and it was originally released in 1988. So 30 years later, yeah. Um, this new hardcover edition is 40 bucks, so not something I'm going to pick up spur of the moment, unfortunately, but the book is definitely on my wish list now, so thank you guys for that. And I, uh, from what y'all have said, I'm really looking forward to reading it and learning more about Silver Surfer. Of last week's new comic book releases, I think my two favorites were Test Issue 1 and Space Bandits Issue 1. Um, Test is another series by Chris Sabella. It's about a young human guinea pig named Aleph, Null, who is seeking a fabled land of advanced technology called Laurelwood. At times, as I was getting into this first issue, um, Aleph's ranting was a bit nonsensical and kind of hard for me to parse, but I actually I enjoyed that because it really forced me to pay attention to what I was reading. So like no quick scans on this book. You, you need to be paying attention to what you're reading because it feels like every line that they're saying could be some kind of an Easter egg hint at things to come. Um, and the quick pacing of the character's dialogue really added tension uh, and gives us a sense of the strife that the character is experiencing as we're learning about their origins in human testing and in body hacking. Uh, yeah, body hacking, transhumanism are things that I am super interested in personally. So I'm pretty intrigued to see how Sabella is pulling in those very modern, real things into this vaguely, I'm, I'm thinking it's science fiction, I'm thinking it's fiction. <laughs> I haven't been to Laurelwood, I don't know. Uh, interested to see how this one plays out. So the art on test is by Jen Hickman, who actually worked on another very future forward comic I loved called Moth and Whisper that I think was published over the course of mostly 2018-ish. So another pretty new book, um, which I would also very recommend. A lot happens in this first issue of Test, and I think we're definitely being set up for quite a roller coaster of action, you know, really fast-paced action, lots of G-men, probably more than a few short circuits on the way. So yeah, Test Issue 1, out now from Vault Press. And then Space Bandits uh, is by Mark Millar, with art by Mateo Scalera. And Millar can be pretty hit or miss for me, but this first issue was solid. The book focuses on two women who are some of the best criminals out there, one who plans heists and another who runs scams, and both are worth millions to the authorities and both get royally screwed over by their male partners and teens, as it were. Um, yeah, thanks, dudes. Thanks for screwing over the ladies doing all the hard work. Issue one ends with those two women meeting on a prison planet, and I'm very curious to see where we go from here. Obviously, a monumental jailbreak is on the way, but it's hard to tell just how fast-paced the series is going to run. So, like, that jailbreak could happen in issue two, it could happen in issue four. I don't know yet. We're just getting started. 
I did definitely love the art. It, <laughs> it feels kind of like a uh, slightly more optimistic, more daylight and pop star infused version of Blade Runner. Um, and I would also say that if you enjoyed Sean Murphy's art on Tokyo Ghost, so those very expansive cityscapes, lots of grime, urban sprawl sort of a thing. If you liked that, you will definitely enjoy Scalera's work on Space Bandits. Then next week, no, sorry, this week, um, keep your eyes out for the new Criminal Bad Weekend hardcover being released by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. The Criminal series is a fan favorite for those who like crime noir and detective fiction. And Bad Weekend was a two-issue story from earlier this year that has been expanded and remastered for this hardcover. So originally just two issues, but they've added some additional content. They've, you know, cleaned things up a bit, I guess. I haven't seen the book yet, but it's out Wednesday, probably the same day that this podcast hits. The story takes place at a small town comic con, and... Bad Weekend has already been lauded as some of the best comics of the year. So this is serious business. The book is something I am personally looking forward to picking up. Since I missed out on those single issues as well, happens. But the hardcover is only $17, which I think is a pretty good price for a hardcover from some master comics creators. So that is due on shelves Wednesday, what is it, July 10th, I believe. Speaking of Comic Cons, a couple weeks ago I attended the first Portland Indie Con. Now, there was a lot of expectations being placed on this event after several years ago Portland's beloved Stumptown's Comics Fest held its final con in 2013 and no other indie-focused event has really stuck around for more than a couple of years since then, so a lot of the industry was pretty hopeful about what Portland IndieCon would be bringing to the local scene. Full disclosure, I did volunteer as an organizer of Stumptown through its final years, so I definitely have some feels, both personal and professional, about small indie-focused comics events. Okay. Portland IndieCon did fine for its first year, though I can't say that I was particularly impressed by anything. They got some things right, and some things just missed the mark for me. I was only there for a few hours on the second day of the two-day event, so being a bit later in the weekend, I did talk to some of the exhibitors about their impressions of the show and how the weekend had gone for them. And, you know, I got mixed responses. It sounded like sales were slow across the board, which is not surprising for a first year, but also attendance was pretty light. At least it seemed light while I was there. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. Low attendance for a first year doesn't surprise me. And of course, that's going to lead to lower sales. Totally reasonable. I think my biggest takeaway was the event's internal economy. That's the best thing I can think to call it. Um, in terms of the products available versus the people attending, right? So I'm not sure about the cost to exhibitors to have a table, but as an attendee, it was $10 for the weekend or $7 for one day. I walked in with a $50 budget, 
which can usually get me a pretty decent haul of comics, zines, prints, and, you know, miscellaneous swag in an artist alley at a larger con that costs $40 or more to attend for a single day. So only seven bucks on this one leaves me more money to spend on other stuff, right? But I pretty quickly realized that that was not the case here, as many books and prints started off at $30 and went up from there. And I'm not saying that that is too expensive, because I honestly feel like artists often undervalue their work. So in some ways, it was nice to see those higher price tags on items. But at the same time, this meant that if I'm walking in with 40 or 50 bucks, I was only going to be able to support two or three creators with that budget. And that's really frustrating when you're walking in wanting to pick up stuff from maybe uh, several people that you've been waiting to meet in person. You want to leave some room for people that you've never seen their work before, right? So that was kind of frustrating for me. In the end, it kind of felt more like a book fair than a comics event. And I think that's largely just because of that price tag alone. And I didn't really see as many zine type things as I usually lean towards. In terms of creator variety, while I personally, I was totally okay with the mix, um, but I know that some attendees were kind of disappointed by seeing the same local creators that table at almost every other regional comics event and whose books are available at most every comic shop in town. That is not the creator's fault for being accessible. That's just, you know, what's going to happen when you live in Comic City, USA. I mean, here in Portland, we are simultaneously blessed by an amazing, amazing amount of comics creators who live here. You know, they work out of Portland. They do signings and events constantly all over town. And it's awesome if you love comics to have that going on year round and it's not a one-time thing. But then that also means that we're cursed by the fact that we are spoiled by this accessibility, that we have these creators who are always around and sometimes it's easy to, you know, lose the luster of it because you see them everywhere. And it's a bummer that that happens, but it is an honest byproduct of living somewhere that is so saturated in comics and comics creators. So yeah, I was okay with the mix, um, but some people would have liked to have seen more out-of-town creators or more, even more independent creators. And I think that's always part of the hope of a con like this, especially a first-year independent focused, is that they're going to bring in new creators and new comics we haven't seen before or had access to. I did, however, I definitely did discover some very rad new talents to follow. I had great conversations with people about their work, about what inspires them, about the comics that they love and enjoy reading. So like, I feel like I got my money's worth easily from the event and I enjoyed the like two or three hours that I was there. I was pretty pleased that beyond the gamut of folks whose work I was already pretty familiar with, um, there was a lot of queer focused publications and a lot of very witchy themes, like lots of feminism, lots of empowerment, lots of magic, lots of gay shit. 
that was pretty cool to see. And I definitely picked up some stuff that I have not seen in comic shops before. So good job on that. It was a nice event to pop into for a couple hours, if nothing else, but it was definitely no Stumptown. But then again, the industry has changed a lot since Stumptown's final year in 2013, both locally and nationally, and even internationally. So I don't think that we really need a replacement for Stumptown or for line work or another one that I'm forgetting. I'm sorry, I'm bad with names. Um, we don't need replacements as much as we merely need organizers who are passionate and knowledgeable about comics and about independent press. So, you know, this was Portland IndieCon's first year and it can definitely take a few years for an event like this to find their footing and their place in the local scene as well as within the industry at large. So, critiques aside, I think they definitely pulled off a solid little mini weekend con and I will be very, very curious to see how they can refine and hopefully step up their presence for next year's second year of the Portland Indie Comic Con. And in case you missed it, I did post my haul of comics and prints and even some records. Posted my haul up on the podcast Instagram account with all the creators tagged as much as I could. So definitely check out that post from a week or so ago and find some new creative folks to give a follow. All right, guys, moving on. Here is an interaction I had at work recently, and it's a bit of a cautionary tale. Someone came in and asked the status of a comic book, whether there was going to be more, and when the next trade would be out. Normal stuff like that. Pretty basic questions that I am always happy to answer. So yeah, I told him about the most recent issue, about the publishing schedule, what they've changed with the series since he last read it, and what's coming up. Wow, he replied. I can't believe you actually knew all that off the top of your head. Um, I mean, yeah, it's kind of my job to know what's going on with popular series. But he did happen to be asking about a book I personally enjoyed, so I was pretty familiar with any recent news and changes to the series. Usually, this is the moment where people say something like, oh, cool, thanks for all the information. Or maybe, wow, you seem like you know a lot about this book. Do you read it? But no, not our guy. He followed up with, well, if you knew that, I'm going to have to start quizzing you about random books. Verbatim, that's what he said. And just no, okay? Have to? No, you don't. Don't fucking quiz me about my job, okay? I am not a dancing monkey in a Batman suit. You asked me a question, and I answered it. Which is uh, essentially what I said to him. Well, okay. Technically, I said, no, you don't need to quiz me. That's called gatekeeping, and we don't do that here. Which he thought was hilarious. Cue awkward moments of laughter, okay? So then, instead of quizzing me about specific books, 
he proceeded to quiz me about my general knowledge. So questions like, what's your favorite graphic novel? What's your favorite book about robots? What's a good book that's like this video game? What's the last comic book you read? What's the next book you're gonna read? And it was just like this slew of inane questions. So technically, this guy is still playing quiz time, and it's still fucking gatekeeping, okay? Because he is just wasting my time to see how much I know about comics, even though I know he's not going to buy anything. I could have shown him 10 books that perfectly matched his game show questions, and he would not have walked out with a single one. He would have just said, oh, cool, and put it back on the shelf which is what he did with the three I handed him before excusing myself to go back to the counter and continue doing other work that would actually make a difference in anything. So yes, while I can recite catalogs of information off the top of my head, you know what I can't do? I can't ask someone if they're actually looking for a recommendation for a book to purchase today, or if they just think it's cool that a chick who works in a comic book shop actually knows something about comic books. Because, admittedly, that's kind of rude. It's about as rude as demanding somebody prove to you that they know how to do their job, even though you're not going to contribute to their wages for the time you just wasted. So don't be that guy, okay? Don't quiz people who are trying to do their job. If you are impressed with their knowledge, say, wow, that's impressive. And if you're gonna ask for more information, just be nice about it. You don't have to be a dick and make it seem like they have to perform for you somehow. That's not what local comic shops are for. That's not what computer stores are for. Like, it's not a competition and it's not a talent showcase, okay? So just be kind to retail workers. Be kind to restaurant wait staff, and let us do our fucking job and buy something and then leave. We love it when you do that. I think my favorite analogy for how to behave in a comic book shop is this. Would you do this thing in a shoe store? Would you walk into a shoe store? For, so yeah, for this example, would you walk into a shoe store and ask the employee if they have something specific in stock, what their favorite shoe is, what the best work boot is, what's the shoe that has the most style for a dress event, what's the most popular women's shoe, just every random ass question about those shoes you can think of in quick succession. Ask all those and then walk out without buying anything? Would you do that to a shoe store? I mean, I'm sure people have done that, but I kind of doubt it happens as much in a shoe store as it does working in comics retail. So, end rant. That was dumb and it was frustrating, but I moved on. And now I'm gonna move on to some questions. I did, I think it was like last Friday or so when I was going into the weekend before recording, I posted up on Instagram asking for some folks to hit me with questions or any topics they wanted me to cover on this episode. And now here we are. I did get two excellent questions and I'm going to respond to them. Um, first up, listener non-playable asked, do you think, and I'm going to expand his question a little bit. I understood his verbing, but I want to fill it with a few extra words so that we're all on the same page about what the question is. Okay. Do you think Heavy Metal's new Softwood will successfully fill the Mad Magazine void? 
I'm going to leave that in because that man was driving very fast. Okay. Short answer. No, I don't think softwood is going to fill that mad void. But let's examine why. Mad Magazine launched in the early 50s and has long been a paragon, an absolute paragon of political satire and pop culture parody, and has tackled a lot of incredibly heavy subjects in its several decades of publication. Um, and you know, while often gross and maybe a little sensational, Mad has largely been a publication that has been accessible to kids. Even if some parents might balk at the content, it was reliably a magazine that kids could purchase, right? Um, you know, Weird Al, Weird Al Yankovic credits Mad Magazine with why he's, frankly, so weird. And then we have Softwood, on the other hand, which is going to be a comedy magazine coming from Heavy Metal, which is, you know, a lot of us are familiar with Heavy Metal, a fantasy and science fiction magazine that definitely skews adult in its themes. So, from the few pages of previews I've seen, Softwood does too. But I think we could have guessed that based on the name alone, right? I mean, so Mad Magazine will be seeing its final issue of new content later this year. And after that, I don't think any publisher, heavy metal, anyone else, I don't think any publisher will be willing to create a young reader accessible magazine that has been quite as daring as Mad has been. And I truly do feel that this is the end of an era. But uh, DC, or sorry, Mad Magazine Parents Company, DC Comics, they will be uh, continuing to maintain licensing rights by reprinting Mad Magazine content into basically trade paperback formats. So if you have loved the books over the years, the content will remain accessible, but we won't be getting new stuff from that. And I think that is a major bummer because they really, you know, it's important to have that kind of satire available for all ages. And I think a lot of times it's important to have some more, oh, how do I put this? Have publications that don't treat kids like kids. And I think that's one of the things that made Mad Magazine so popular is that, yeah, it was immature, it was gross, but they went there with some things and they called some people out and they covered politics and they covered culture. And having that as a resource can be incredibly formative into creating very well-rounded and intelligent adults. And, and, you know, I'm going to be bummed. So watch for that final issue. Gosh, I think September, October, maybe, for Mad Magazine. It's a bummer. I think Softwood starts pretty soon. Um, if it's not this week, I think it is sometime in July. So if you like dick jokes, keep your eyes out for some Softwood, guys. I don't like dick jokes. That's a lie, yes. Who doesn't like a good dick joke? Okay, then, also... My buddy Red Jack asked if I had any thoughts on The Walking Dead's abrupt end. And yes, I have a couple thoughts. If you aren't a follower of The Walking Dead, you might have missed that this past Wednesday saw the final issue 
final, final issue of the long-running comic series, which launched in 2003. Now, The Walking Dead is one of the first comic series I got into reading on the reg when the trade paperbacks started coming out, but I haven't really read any of the series past the fourth hardcover collection. So this news didn't really affect me personally. And it was a very abrupt end. Fans and retailers were mostly kept in the dark that this would be the final issue. It wasn't until the week of release that anyone outside of Image Comics knew it was ending. Image even solicited future issues for months out to keep everyone in the dark. And okay, so you want to know what I honestly think about it being an abrupt end, specifically? <laughs> I think, in general, it was high time for the series to conclude. But I think it was irresponsible of Image to not give retailers a chance to increase their orders on the issue. Irresponsible how? Well, by not forewarning retailers in even the vaguest way that they might want to increase their orders for issue 193, what ends up happening is that the normal quantities ordered by comic shops end up getting bought up not by the folks who read the comic off the rack, but by speculators who rush in on the day of release to make sure to get a prized first printing. And they will buy one copy, they will buy five copies, they will buy however many copies of this comic that you will sell them. And then they take the comics that they purchased at retail price and immediately flip them on sites like eBay and Amazon. So, Walking Dead issue 193 retailed for $3.99, which means shops made maybe a couple bucks on it. But the speculators who paid that $4 for that comic turn around and sell them for $25 to $35, $40 bucks online within days, same day within a week of it being sold out uh, from comic book shops. So the speculators make a much larger profit than the comic shop. Unless, of course, retailers sacrifice their shelf stock that they would normally sell to their average customer and then sell them themselves online at those inflated prices just to remain competitive and remove the speculator middleman. So as someone who works in the comics retail industry, it is really, really frustrating to see speculators making a higher profit on that single issue than the shops who have been stocking the comic and supporting the series for years. Especially considering that comic shops across the country have been closing these past couple years due to decreasing sales because digital comics and online sales are so prevalent and accessible, right? So with The Walking Dead having been a major part of comics culture for the past 15 years and a major part of shops' monthly incomes because, you know, you sell 100 copies of a comic book, that adds up, right? I feel truly it was a misstep for the publisher to not support the comics retailer on this issue by making sure that retailer supply would meet customer demand, and thus they fueled the secondhand speculator market. But, but that is just me. That's me, okay? Nobody else's opinion but mine on that. So some silver lining here. If you're one of the folks who didn't get to pick up a copy of The Walking Dead issue 193, final issue of The Walking Dead series, perhaps it'll help to know that second printings should be available at your local comic shop around the end of July. 
and I guess we'll just have to hope that the fervor hasn't died down by then and buyers are still there to support their shops on their inevitably large orders of those second print runs. Hmm. So, yeah, I, uh, I guess I did have some feelings about that, huh? Well, we should probably wrap this up before I find something else to rant about. <laughs> I did warn you guys, going into things, it was gonna be a ranty, so can't blame me for that. Um, yeah, thanks for bearing with all of my feels this week. Um, hopefully the kids that now live above me will run out of energy soon. I don't know if you can hear them stomping around right now, but it's currently occurring. It's driving me insane. Um, hopefully they'll run out of energy and I can get caught up on my sleep. And in the meantime, please be kind to yourselves. Please be kind to retail and service industry workers. Please support your local comic shop and buy something that is brand new to you. And please remember to drink water because that is never a bad idea. And I guess that's it. I'll talk to y'all in a couple weeks. Bye. This has been Merrick Has Issues, produced and edited by Merrick Monroe. For news and announcements and additional content, please follow the podcast online. I'm Merrick Has Issues on both Facebook and Instagram, and Twitter is MHI Podcast. I do also have a contact form set up at MerrickHasIssues.com, so feel free to hit me up wherever if you have a question or there's a topic you want me to talk about on a future episode. The theme music for America's Issues is provided by Keelan King from his Star Pilot Remixes album. You can learn more about this podcast and find my show notes for the episode at MerrickHasIssues.com. Mm-hmm.